Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volts for November 17th, 2023. FERC is about to make some very important decisions about transmission. I'm your host, David Roberts. By now, it is fairly well understood that the U.S. badly needs more electricity transmission lines to keep up with the changing generation mix and growth in demand that will come with clean electrification. But new lines, especially the much-needed longer-distance regional lines, are being built at a snail's pace. If the U.S. is to hit its mid-century climate goals, transmission capacity expansion must radically accelerate. Congress helped a little with money in the infrastructure bill, and the Biden administration helped by establishing a grid deployment office inside the Department of Energy, But arguably, the biggest opportunity for progress comes in the form of an upcoming rule by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. It will beef up the commission's existing rules on regional transmission planning. But exactly how much it will strengthen them depends on the final rule, expected early next year. Transmission advocates are urging FERC to pass a rule with real teeth, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who sent the commission a letter with encouragement and suggestions in July. Nobody knows more about grid policy than Rob Gramlich, founder and president of Grid Strategies, a policy analysis and strategy firm. He is executive director of both Americans for a Clean Energy Grid and the Watt Coalition. He serves on the board of half a dozen other groups, and has a long history in the industry, including a stint at FERC in the early 2000s. I talked with Rob about the current state of affairs in transmission policy, the scope of FERC's authority, and the details that matter in the upcoming rule. Don't let the technical-sounding subject scare you off. This was a fun one and incredibly clarifying. Okay, then, with no further ado, Rob Gramlich, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, David. Great to be here. I am excited to talk about this. I know that perhaps FERC is not at the top of people's mind when they think about excitement and thrills, but uh, I think people will see by the end of this why this is a very good time to tune in to what FERC's doing. So let's start here. I think we can assume for the purposes of this pod (laughs) that Volt's listeners understand the need for more transmission, specifically the need for more long distance transmission for a bunch of reasons. We know that the, the resource mix is changing. We care more about renewables now. They're located in different places. They're located not necessarily next to load. They're remote. We're going to double or triple the amount of electricity we're using in coming years because we're electrifying everything, so we need more transmission for that reason. We know that connecting up a wider geographical area makes the whole system more reliable, makes the whole system cheaper. Transmission is uh, the wonder tool of energy. It makes everything better. And yet, we are not (laughs) building it. (laughs) So... Back in the late 90s, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which has jurisdiction over 
interstate transmission, released a series of orders. So like, you know, in the beginning, there were just across the nation, just dozens and dozens of individual vertically integrated utilities, all of which were building their own transmission, more or less for their own areas. And so back in the late 90s, FERC saw this and many other people saw the need for more interregional transmission and issued a series of orders trying to kind of nudge things in that direction, doing, among other things, they created regional transmission operators and independent system operators, RTOs and ISOs, which were supposed to be regional organizations that <laughs> that did regional transmission planning. And there were others too. There were, I think going all the way up to 2011, there were other orders basically like, please friggin' utilities get together and start doing some planning, do some interregional planning. And yet, despite this series of orders and despite the existence now of RTOs, we're still not building interregional transmission. I mean, we're building it at a snail's pace and not necessarily where we need it and certainly nothing close to the pace we need to be building at. So maybe let's just start here. Why, given the existence of RTOs, which are explicitly supposed to do this, is there still not adequate regional transportation planning? Maybe you could run through the three Ps here. So that's going to help kind of set us up for what's to come. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for your uh, help in communicating all that. So yeah, let's <laughs> stipulate that the need for transmission is understood. And uh, that's great that it is because a few years ago it wasn't, but you've been helpful. It does seem like that at least has sunk in in the wider world. I, I think that's right. Um, and of course, um, in recent years, it's been more sort of the climate focused uh, policymakers and community who have uh, understood this, uh, which is great, as they should, for the incredible clean energy uh, need for transmission and climate benefit. But um, just suffice to say, it wasn't always such a, um, you know, democratically tilted issue. <laughs> but that's a, that's a separate conversation we could get into. But yeah, FERC has been in the in the 90s and the early 2000s had orders trying to uh, beg, plead, and borrow uh, the industry to get going on regional transmission. And in fact, it goes even way back. I mean, the 1935 Federal Power Act itself has some language about the voluntary, encouraging the voluntary coordination hmm. of the systems. And then there were actions in the pre-war and wartime to be able to produce the um, you know, military assets and airplanes and everything by, you know, we needed to increase the production basically out of the electric industry. Yeah. It's a bummer. We decided to build this interstate <laughs> road network basically for security purposes around then and did not decide at the same time to do the same thing for transmission. It would have been a good move on our part. That's right. But there were actions by uh, the predecessor to FERC, the uh, Federal Power Commission, during those same years, though, you know, trying to strengthen the, the connections. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it only went so far. And then it was really when the electric industry tried to restructure to get generation competition in the 90s that it started pushing harder. There was a 1993 regional transmission group, RTG policy statement. And then they said, well, that's not enough. And then, then they had order 888 for open access transmission that included a push for 
voluntary creation of independent system operators. That's where that term really came into practice. Uh, it was encouraged and voluntary. And then the commission tried in 1999 to require participation in the regional transmission organizations, RTOs. That's where that term was sort of defined. Uh, but Chairman Hecker at that time couldn't quite get the votes to make that mandatory, so it was voluntary. Mm. And then I was part of my full-time job was standard market design. I'm not embarrassed to say uh, that <laughs> one that one never never made it to being even a rule because of a political backlash. Again, another story for another day. But um, you know that was at least strong encouragement. And then. Order 890, when uh, Republican Chairman Joe Kelleher came in, he had been on House Energy and Commerce and in the Bush administration, and he tried to require, well, he did require through Order 890, some strengthened planning requirements. And then Chairman John Wellinghoff issued Order 1000 and the, and the commission, of course, in 2011. And that also sort of went another step further and in this process, some of those orders were challenged uh, in the in the courts, uh, and then FERC's hand was actually strengthened after all of that because the uh, the court challenges held up FERC's authority and said, absolutely, you can require transmission planning. So you know, FERC's role here has only been strengthened over the years in terms of the clarity of its legal authority. Uh, and yet, as you say, it hasn't really worked yet. And so here we are in the end of 2023 with an agency that actually is in charge of this and has quite clearly been claimed by the courts to be the one entity that can really do this in a significant way. And uh, it's actually kind of exciting now because, uh, you know, look at this. We have this great proposed rule that Chairman Glick and the commission issued a year and a half ago. And well, before we get to that, though, I want to I want a, an explanation for why those previous ones didn't work. Like, why aren't RTOs building these things? Yeah, there, there are probably a few reasons. Yeah. In like 100 words or less, because we can't get too bogged down in this, because I know right. this is a this is a tar pit. I'll try to just yeah, give you a, <laughs> a, a few. Look, I mean, one issue is incumbent generators don't necessarily want to enable new generation to come onto the grid. So we have these RTO entities, incumbent generation owners, whether they're part of a utility or independent, uh, they are usually not the strongest supporters of new transmission. So that's a, that's a factor. And then, uh, you know, those entities are active in FERC proceedings as well. That's one factor. Uh, another factor, we had all this transmission collaboration happening in 20, like 10 through 13, and a bunch of transmission got built. We actually got a ton of new renewable energy connected to the grid a decade ago from these, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners know about the multi-value projects in the Midwest and oh, the Texas competitive renewable energy zones. So there was a little bit of a, you know, renaissance then, but then it was very short lived and it ended like 10 years ago, it stopped. Uh, you know, some people say Order 1000 had some unintended consequences that stopped that. I think that's part of it. Also, the cost of solar dropped and the cost of gas dropped. So a lot of that transmission was more wind driven. Mm. And when you could do a lot of gas and solar, you didn't need quite as much transmission. So I think that does factor as well. And then I just sort of think like inertia took over, like people got used to going to regional transmission planning meetings and making sure nothing actually happened. And they got <laughs> good at eating muffins and checking the compliance <laughs> box. But then 
not actually doing anything. So I think it's just, you know, ripe for a whole reshuffling. And that's what that's what FERC can do. Okay, so before we get to this FERC opportunity, let's at least uh, give a little shout out to some movement lately, some policy wins. So in the Infrastructure Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, there's some money for transportation, which I think uh, is is nice but inadequate. And then there's this new grid development office. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are those the two biggies and, and how sort of like a big of a deal are those relatively? Yeah, uh, potentially over time, the grid deployment office could be huge. And it's off to a great start, I will say. The current uh, team there and the current uh, administration and Secretary Granholm are leading, I think, a very you know productive and promising exercise there. Was that created by legislation or was that just created by an executive action? Technically just an executive action by Secretary Granholm. She can set up offices if she so chooses. As, Got as, it. So it's an office within DOE. That's right. Which, you know, put this on your list of future policies is let's actually formalize that in legislation. It would be nice to, right. to do that. But there was actually an, an attempt, but that's a longer story. Uh, but that's that office has financing tools. It has permitting tools. It has capabilities. They've been hiring like crazy, really good people. And that could really be a, a very helpful enabler of transmission. You know, private sector investment, there's no shortage of capital that wants to invest in this sector, but uh, it's just a morass trying to, you know, get projects done. So mm-hmm. DOE has important tools. Many of them are now kind of all being consolidated in this grid deployment office uh, to enable transmission. And what's the money in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act? Right. Well, very little, unfortunately. I mean, uh, there's there's like one really great provision called the Transmission Facilitation Program. Uh, Senator Cantwell introduced that, but it's it's a two point five billion dollar program, uh, and it's it's not technically a loan, but it's sort of like a loan. It's, it does have to be paid back, and so it's not really that much money. It's intended to be a revolving. Fun, but you know, two point five billion in the scheme of an industry that spends that every couple of months is not, yeah, a, right. not transformative. And there was at one point in the Build Back Better saga a pretty hefty tax credit mm-hmm. for transmission, which got stripped out at some point. That would have been serious money, right? That could have been serious money. It scored at thirteen billion, but who knows? Tag the way you know the way tax credits work is if the industry really gets excited, it's uncapped and, you know, more could have been done. So that, that could have been great. And it's so hard to figure out who pays for how much Just starting to evolve into the three P's, planning, permitting, and paying. <laughs> that paying part is, I think, the hardest because it's a public good and everybody benefits some, so nobody wants to pay for it. And so that tax credit could have at least made that whole problem, you know, 30% easier by covering 30% <laughs> of the investment cost. Right. So then you're you're having to allocate the 70% rather than having to allocate 100%. Exactly. We'll, and we'll get into that cost allocation in a bit. So we've had some movement, but inadequate. And there is some legislative stuff that would be relatively easy and high impact. And maybe uh, when we get through this FERC stuff, we can touch on that before we're done. But now, in terms of the tools Biden has to use here... Well, not even Biden, really, since it's supposed to be independent. But in, in terms of federal tools, basically, we're we're 
we're dealing with FERC. So before we jump into the, the proposed rule, let's just talk for a second about FERC. As I understand it, there are supposed to be five commissioners, ideally. There are, in fact, four, and we're heading to three. So <laughs> make some sense of all that uh, for us. Where are we with FERC in terms of the balance of commissioners? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's supposed to be five, no more than three from one party. So over the years, it's typically been three, two, one direction or the other, right? right. And uh, Chairman Glick, his term expired. Uh, and so he is off and that seat is open. Commissioner Danley, his term ends, well, technically June 30th. So wait, Glick is gone, yeah. which left a 2-2 right. Republican-Democrat split. That's the current state of affairs. That's the current state of affairs as we sit, yeah, for I guess the entire year of 2023, it'll be 2-2. Right. And then Danley, who is a Republican, is stepping down. When? That's right. So yeah, every year one you know seat opens because they're staggered five-year terms. So he will need to leave by the end of 2023 in a month or two. Got it. Which will leave a two to one Democratic <laughs> majority on FERC. And those other two, like, we don't have to get into this, but like, what the hell's going on? Why is it taking so long to get new commissioners? Uh, is it is it Joe Manchin? I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm just guessing. Is it Joe Manchin? Well, uh, I mean, certainly he's the chair of the committee and he has strong preferences uh, you know, that he expressed both on existing commissioners and potential new commissioners and the White House technically gets to nominate. So, you know, the two of them have to agree, the president and Senator Manchin, uh, but also the history and the tradition, the practice is sort of often one party will pair with the other party. So you'll do two together. Mm. And uh, there's just been just a lack of activity. I'm not actually sure either party. I'm not sure the president or McConnell or Barrasso or Manchin. I'm not sure any of them are like hustling or feel a need to hustle to get a lot done right away. I think they all recognize like in 2024, when you're down to three, then you really can start having problems. Like you might not have a quorum just to get business done. You know, somebody might have a cousin who, uh, one commissioner might have a cousin who works for a company and they get recused from the case and you can't vote the order out and it gets you know, dicey like that. So just when situations like that arise, the Senate Energy Committee, you know, knowing it's their responsibility to make sure business can get done at FERC, they'll get more active. So I do expect in early 2024, they will get active. Um, there are, you know, there, there seems to be a, a name that um, Manchin and the White House agree on. Uh, there could be a pairing, there could be somebody that you know, McConnell and or Barrasso recommend from the Republican side. But I think everybody's kind of holding their cards close right now. There's not a lot of. Right. And that could take a while. So what's relevant for us here, I think, is if this rule is the rule that we're about to talk about is advanced expeditiously, it could be voted on by a three commissioner FERC with a two to one Democratic majority, meaning it could be made good and strong and get through with Democratic votes. That's right. Uh, there, I mean, the order seems close to ready. Uh, they've had they wanted to do interconnection first. We could talk about that, but that was a major undertaking, one of the biggest orders ever. And so Chairman Phillips had uh, had to sequence things one way or another. Couldn't do them all at once. So that happened first. They seem to be getting close to ready on um, on this big planning rule. And so I think early in 2024 they'd be 
ready to do that. It will be a 2-1 at that point. But everybody in FERC world likes to not talk about it in partisan terms. And, of course. Uh, of course. Uh, you know, or pretending. <laughs> well, the, the proposal <laughs> did issue as a uh, unanimous bipartisan proposal. So the hope is that it would be a 3-0, and it, and it could be. I mean, there's no, let's just, let's just say, there's no obvious reason Right, that this should be partisan at all. It's good. For, it's literally good for everyone, except maybe some utilities. <laughs> like it's good. For, it's good for society. You know, name your entity. So bipartisan would be nice, but you know, should that fail, uh, it could still get through. So tell us a little bit about this planning rule. It dates back to 2021. It was a. It was a Glick joint uh, originally. That's right. Yeah. So Chairman Glick and his team really led the development of it. The other commissioners were there. Commissioner Clements uh, is the other Democrat on the commission, who I don't think we mentioned yet. And she's very supportive of the rule. And then they had this extensive process with the state. So that's part of the why it's taken a lot of time, uh, which is, I think, great and very helpful. But there's this incredibly extensive record of discussion with states on how this works through this joint federal state task force. So it's, uh, you know, it has been out there for now 18 months. And again, we had commissioners transition and a chair transition and other big orders that the commission had to get out. But I I feel like it's ripe now and, and good and close to ready. One other preface question. So I saw that Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, wrote a letter to FERC recently acknowledging the importance of this rule and giving some recommendations for strengthening it. Recommendations that, as far as I can tell, were lifted more or less straight from this report (laughs) you wrote last year with recommendations. And we're going to go through some of those recommendations. But is it the case that the current order as it currently exists does none of these things, and that's why you're recommending all these things? Or sort of, it's sort of unclear on how strong extant order is and, and, and how much of these recommendations, uh, you know what I mean? Like, where, where, where is it now? Yeah, the, the order, I mean, so many things are great about the order. I, you know, it says it has all the right, you know, analysis, I think, and, and record evidence and support from a really vast majority of the industry, including utilities and consumer advocates and the the whole range of stakeholders who care about these things. Uh, And the proposed rule is generally, I think, excellent. And I think Chairman Glick is going to be commended or should be commended for that, as well as the other commissioners. But there were a few things that, you know, somehow ended up a little bit weak in the proposal. And I don't think accomplished what the commission, you know, thought it was trying to accomplish. Now there's a lot of cooks in that kitchen and, you know, the commissioners don't talk about internal deliberations. So, you know, one can only on the outside kind of guess what happens on the inside where, you know, I used to be there walking up and down the hall trying to negotiate orders like this. But, um, you know, sometimes you can guess because the commissioners make public statements about what they like or dislike or what they would want to see in the final rule. But uh, I thought that letter you mentioned from Senator Schumer did an excellent job of saying, hey, here's a few things you really need to fix to make this thing do what you say it does. Yeah, yeah. Let's walk through some of those. So there's sort of three buckets here of, of recommendations. One is about planning, what to require in terms of 
interregional planning. There's some stuff about cost allocation, paying, the planning and the paying. Yep. Permitting, I think, is separate and will be will have to be dealt with separately. And then there's stuff on basically making sure the process is cost effective with a little bit more FERC oversight. So let's we're gonna walk through all those. So in terms of interregional planning, there are four specific recommendations about what to require of the planning process. So let's walk through those. The first is just maybe do your planning based on what you actually think is going to happen to the electricity system, forward-looking rather than backward-looking. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and by the way, the rule really is more intra-regional than inter-regional. They're going to do, hopefully they'll do inter-regional separate, but that was, they bit off the intra-regional. Oh, so this is planning within regions. Right. Uh, as a first step, but it, honestly, everything in here could equally be applied. You could just a year later come through with a red line, you know, global search and replace intra with inter, <laughs> and it's all, all the same things would work. But let's focus on the uh, the regional, and these are wide regions of the country. I mean, you know, the whole Midwest, the whole Mid-Atlantic. Right, um, right. The West is in three areas, but could be one merged together. There's discussion about that. But at any rate, yeah, the planning requirements, and again, the courts have said, FERC, you've got very strong authority to require planning practices, you know, whether you can actually direct the outcome, like plan for this or that outcome, that's sort of untested. But uh, in terms of planning methodologies, absolutely FERC, go for it. So they issued these planning methodologies. And the first one, as you say, is essentially plan for the anticipated future resource mix. You know, if if you're going to plan. (laughs) I had to read this section (laughs) A couple of times, I'm like, they're not doing that. Like, what? What else? What would else think, would you do? You would think that if there are these organizations around the country with regional planning in the name of the organization and in their <laughs> charter of what they're supposed to do, as well as departments called regional planning and people with, you know, regional transition planning in their title, you would think you would be forgiven <laughs> if, if you thought. Uh, oh, these people plan, uh, <laughs> you know, which by any definition means like preparing for the anticipated future, right? Right. Well, that is not actually what happens. <laughs> so in most of the country, they really don't do any kind of long term. They don't do an estimate of what the future resource mix is going to be. And and I'm talking about load and generation and retirements and additions and all these sort of, you know, macro categories of the things that change on a transmission system. Um, And it, and it's not, by the way, it's not like saying, Oh, um, well, the president wants to decarbonize the system by such and such amount, by such and such a date. Therefore everybody do that. No, it's not even saying that it's just saying regional planner, you and your region anticipate these changes, these additions, these subtractions, these load changes, uh, and then plan, you know, for that. So the critique is not even that your forecasts are inadequate or that your forecasts and modeling are flawed in some way, but just that you're, they're literally just not, just not doing it, doing it at all. That's uh, right. That's a little crazy. Seems like a, (laughs) seems like an entirely reasonable 
request that when you're planning, you you anticipate uh, what's to come. And, and especially, you know, I mean, I think this is implied, but let's just state it, because we're in a period of incredibly large-scale, rapid change in that very system, in what sources are coming online and retirements are accelerating, all this growing load because of electrification, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a crazy that your regional planning involves no regional planning. So <laughs> exactly right. And and that's a, a striking thing about the 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 official record evidence in this case of like uh, so many, I mean scores of utilities and states came in and say, yeah, you know, we basically think all these changes are happening and we need to plan for them. And those entities, states and utilities and others come from a variety of like political perspectives mm -hmm. about whether they want those changes to be happening faster or slower. Right. Um, but they all kind of acknowledge some baseline. And of course, they're, I'm sure in the details, their estimates are, are different, but like they're all pretty much in the ballpark and directionally all entirely consistent that, for example, there's just going to be dramatic wind and solar and storage uh, growth in every region. And that's when it's in the interconnection queue and every other evidence of like what the changes are going to be. So there was a remarkable alignment in the record about the changes happening that need to be planned for. And so, yes, that's the, that's, you know, first and foremost, if your listeners have to, you know, uh, shut off the podcast now, please don't. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the number one, just very basic thing that this rule would require. Number one requirement for planning process, involve planning. <laughs> right. Plan for the future, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it seems radical, <laughs> but yeah, plan planning for the past. No, no, no. Don't plan for the past. We're planning for the future. Radical idea. So then uh, number two is consider all the benefits holistically to, to say a little bit about sort of like what current practices and what that would mean. Uh, the transmission has multiple benefits. There's reliability, resilience. It reduces congestion on the grid, which mm -hmm. is sort of the day-to-day -day cost that consumers have to pay when you have to ramp up expensive generators because of transmission constraints. Or curtail solar. Or curtail wind and solar, absolutely. And it's very hard to often separate out all these benefits. I mean, you build uh, transmission for one purpose and it has all these other benefits for other other purposes. Uh, so FERC is, well, uh, uh, you know, this is where the NOPR got, the, the proposed rule got kind of weak. It, it sort of, here's all these benefits, but then it kind of goes back through and says, well, those are sort of optional. You can look at this one or that one. It's sort of up to you. Well, that's not, the problem with that is like, that's not a regulatory requirement. That's just giving, you know, based on the power structure of a region, if they choose not to do any of this stuff, it's giving them a get out of jail free card to not do this, to say, well, we're just going to pick and choose our benefits. And what happens is it's like if you think of a really basic benefit cost analysis, if you're allowed to say, well, I'm only going to consider one of the four or five or more types of benefits compared to all of the costs, you're almost guaranteed to not have the transmission lines pencil out. Right. It's sort of like if you bought your car only for the basis of its benefit to drive into the grocery store, but not all the other <laughs> reasons you use a car, you're probably not going to buy a car because it's not worth it just for that. And also, let's just say, it's like there was nothing in place preventing them from considering these benefits. So telling them voluntarily, you may consider these benefits like, right. yeah, they could have been considering these benefits and they aren't. So clearly there's a reason they aren't. So clearly they need to be 
pushed to do it, not just allowed. Exactly right. So what's the point of a federal rule if it's just an encouragement to do what you're able to do before? <laughs> right. So this would be a requirement that in those cost-benefit analyses run on a particular transmission project that all the benefits of the transmission project, including resilience, emission reductions, reliability, cost, etc., all be put on the benefit side of the ledger. Yes, that's right. Now, in the details, there's um, you know some issues there. FERC didn't even go into you know a carbon benefit, or there's any number of benefits you could get to that are sort of a little bit outside of normal FERC Federal Power Act jurisdiction. And there's uh, uh, without going too far into this, there's a little bit more that FERC can sort of allow and accept from regions as opposed to what it would require if it's doing a nationwide rule. So. Uh, again, this is very, even what I'm suggesting and what a lot of different clean energy and environmental groups suggested is very modest uh, in terms of just, you know, let's just kind of do the basics within traditional FERC uh, regulatory domain about reliability and resilience and congestion, you know, cost, you know, traditional economic regulatory things that couldn't be misconstrued as like making FERC be an environmental regulator for the country or right. anything like that. Right. So r require the basics and then maybe allow yeah. extras like like a, like a mission reduction. So that's number two. Consider all the benefits. Uh, number one, plan. Number two, consider all benefits. Number three is when you are looking for solutions to congestion, et cetera, consider all the possible solutions. Right. So a new transmission line is not the only possible solution to the problems solved by transmission lines. So ex explain that one just a little bit. So um, there are different technology options that are available today, which is great. There are grid enhancing technologies, and I know you had a recent podcast on that. Yes, Volt's listeners are, are familiar with these. Ways of getting more throughput from existing transmission lines, basically. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, so I recommend uh, going there. Um, and so those technologies were recommended, a little bit of uh, back and forth about the exact list. Hopefully that turns out in a good place to consider all those technologies. So those are, the, yeah, that's kind of the category of like squeeze more out of the existing wires. And then the, another category is uh, new wires. There's new types of conductors, uh, high-performance conductors, I call them. That's called reconductoring existing lines? That's what that's about? Yeah, that's one way to, to do it, uh, where you can just put a different wire on an existing tower, or you can take the towers out and put a different type of, you know, maybe you know, bigger, heavier cables. You can have superconductors. You can have composite core. There's a different, different opportunities for that. So, uh, so those conductors as well. And then there's sort of, you know, more broadly, there's just other, uh, technology options. And so for proposed these, and, and I think various parties are just trying to make sure that the commission, you know, requires full consideration of these technologies in part, because look, nobody wants, um, to have to go to new rights of way when you don't need to. You say maybe like, uh, from a, Social perspective, we don't necessarily want to do new rights of way because they're difficult and they take a long time. But it's worth saying here that the utilities, the reason this needs to be made mandatory is that the utilities 
make money by spending money, right? This is something I come back to over and over again. Like from a utilities perspective, they get a big rate of return if they build a brand new transmission line. Whereas some of these other technologies, I think, fall under kind of maintenance costs that they don't get a rate of return on. So this is one of those areas where utilities probably prefer building more hardware when there are alternative solutions that could avoid the need to build that. Is that accurate? I mean, that's, that is an issue there. I mean, there are a lot of utilities that are doing a lot of great stuff on their system, but it's also true that, you know, this is a regulated monopoly industry. There's a reason we have economic regulators and their job is to ensure that we, you know, get reliable service at affordable, just and reasonable rates. And, you know, the reason we, we have the, this whole regulatory system is because the incentives are, are not you know, aligned with consumers' interests if left unregulated. And so that's <laughs> um, just sort of what regulators are supposed to be doing. And they're supposed to make sure, and they do this at the state level and the federal level, they're supposed to make sure that, you know, the right technology is deployed. Uh, and it makes sense to get that reliable service at a uh, reasonable rate. So this is where, so consumer interests are very um, persuasive and important at FERC on this. They want to make sure, particularly because a lot of these are very low cost technologies. Yeah. They want to make sure that these technologies are deployed in the right way at the right time. And so, uh, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of the folks communicating with FERC are, you know, feel the, the same way. And, you know, again, from, uh, you know, those who are concerned about land use have the same type of concern. They don't, you know, want to disturb uh, previously undisturbed land with new rights of way if they don't have to. So this is where these technologies can really come in uh, and and help maximize what we get out of existing rights of way and existing transmission assets. And so then the fourth, and this I think is, is a little bit more to wrap your head around. The fourth is that these organizations should select rather than doing these cost-benefit analyses one at a time on proposed projects, FERC should require them to work on a portfolio and to do the cost-benefit analysis basically on the portfolio. So you're instead of choosing an individual project to maximize benefits, you're choosing the portfolio that maximizes net benefits. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of efficiencies there that can be uncovered when you look at all the transmission options and configurations together and find the right you know, portfolio or the right suite of upgrades. Uh, there could be just a substation expansion or upgrade that solves a problem. Uh, more efficiently than a new line would, or when you put, you know, some technologies along with a substation here and, you know, a reconductoring over there and a new line over there, that the portfolio has a lot of efficiencies because it is a network. The whole thing is an integrated network. So treat it as a network, plan it as a network. And so that's kind of another sort of best practice transmission planning feature that, you know, historically, I mean, if you ask the planning engineers from, 50 years ago when we actually planned big transmission before they would say, of course we do that. How would you, how could you do it any other way? So it's, <laughs> this is another thing that like, uh, I did, duh. Right. <laughs> okay. So to just summarize here in the planning portion of these recommendations of this upcoming rule, number one, plan for the future, <laughs> actually forecast what's going to happen and plan for that. Number two, consider 
all the benefits, not just singular benefits, not just the benefits you pick and choose. Three, consider all possible solutions, not just new lines, but also new ways of getting more out of existing lines. And then four, apply all this to portfolios rather than individual projects. So you want to, right, considering all benefits and all solutions to different portfolios uh, so that you can maximize sort of the aggregate benefits of this. All of those, as you say, seem like things that are obvious and that anything <laughs> going by the term regional planning would already be doing, but is, is, is not happening. And so FERC um, has an opportunity here to basically require RTOs to do this. So that's the big planning section. And that I think is the, is the, <laughs> the main event here. Like those, those four alone, I think would be transformative. But then we come to the second knot of the planning, paying, permitting troika, which is cost allocation, which is a kind of unnecessarily technical term for just if you're going to build a regional transmission line that crosses boundaries from one utility to the next, from one state to the next, you know, that crosses over all these lines, it is not obvious how to pay for it or rather who who should pay for it right? right who should pay for these lines is it the people building them the people who will benefit from them should should and right now the loose rule is roughly people should pay according to the amount of benefits they get from it but this is not um like the rest of the process not working very well so tell us a little bit about how FERC should be trying to tweak cost allocation to work better. And is part of this, is part of this just by just having a formula or some, some sort of cost allocation formula that can be applied to every project rather than kind of like a bespoke process for every, for, for every line? So just talk a little bit about cost allocation and how FERC's trying to solve it. The basic problem is, as you say, it's, a, it's essentially a public good. Everybody benefits to some extent. And like with other public goods, classic public goods like national defense or bridges and roads and public transportation, you know, er everybody would rather have the other guy pay for it and <laughs> yet get to use it. And that's just natural. And that's why we have usually public financing, right, uh, through our taxes, all of those things. Now, the electric industry is uh, is different and it's generally a private industry, not a public. And, you know, FERC isn't about to completely change that, nor is there really reason to. But we just have to figure out a way to allocate the costs in a, in a fair way just to make sure that sufficient infrastructure gets paid for so that it can be built. So that's why we have this challenge called cost allocation and one of the three Ps, the paying part of the three Ps. So FERC's main need here and, and proposal here is to make sure that a decision gets made. <laughs> okay, we, we, it sets up like a, a process at the regional basis where the states get a, a chance to weigh in and figure out a solution. And, you know, hopefully that leads to agreement on how to allocate the cost of a transmission plan. Maybe they'll decide to have some, you know, one formula that stays in place for all time, or maybe they'll, you know, review it based on each plan every couple of years when it comes through. But uh, the the risk now, if FERC doesn't clarify this in the final rule, is that if they don't agree, 
it just gets stuck. Well, that obviously doesn't solve the, the problem or get infrastructure built. So at the end of the day, there has to be a way to resolve a, a disagreement between states. And so that's pretty much all it is, uh, you know, just recognizing that, look, this can be hard. It's never easy. But at the end of the day, a decision has to be made. Well, can FERC say in this rule, you must make a decision? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what, what hopefully they will say. This is, you know, continuing a theme from the previous section, but also uh, I noticed the recommendations are that they should be assessing costs also based on portfolios, portfolios of projects, maybe rather than like a who's paying for this individual project, this individual project, you know, considering a portfolio and then sort of the aggregate costs. That's right. And doing cost allocation based on that. Yeah. And that that helps with the cost allocation challenge. If you do all the assets and upgrades together then the, the chances are greater that everybody benefits a little bit, as opposed to when you just kind of come in and say, hey, I got a line from here to here. Well, guess what? You know, the, the people in all the other places on the region say, well, I don't want to pay a dime. Right. That That's just, you end up with a, a mire there because it's like right. where to draw the line around those benefits, as you say, like mostly will be on either side of that line, but also in some second order way, a regional benefit, also in some second order way, a national benefit. I mean, benefit to humanity, if, <laughs> to where you draw that line is, is, is somewhat arbitrary. So it's, I think it's helpful to take at least a bigger unit of analysis. There's no magic bullet here where yeah. FERC could say, here's the best formula, now everybody do it. Because you know some regions, when I go and I don't know, I was in the Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest and they're like, yeah, we could really put together something, but we need flexibility to, everybody needs to poke it and, prod at the benefits evaluation and, you know, come to the table and support it. And, you know, so in other words, get to a bespoke cost allocation agreement among parties, whereas other regions are like, oh, man, if we had to go back and relitigate the benefits and cost <laughs> allocation with every regional plan, we'd never get anything done. So <laughs> there is this tension that FERC is going to have to balance between the bespoke and the formulaic approach here. And there's not a good answer that works well in every region. But, um, you know, I think they can provide very helpful guidance. They can narrow down the funnel of like the things that people can agree or disagree about and, uh, you know, get to much greater alignment about how to measure the benefits. Uh, so those types of things, as well as the process with the states, I think could be helpful. And as you say, just requiring a decision. Yes. Like you can't, you can't leave the dinner table until your plate is clear type of thing. Way to give it a really bad taste in people's mouths. No, everybody's <laughs> thinking about the bad Brussels sprouts. But yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, you got to have a decision at the end of the day. All right. So that's planning and cost allocation, uh, planning and paying. So then the third section of recommendations, I think are really interesting. And my instinct, and maybe tell me if I'm wrong, is that this might be the most uncomfortable for FERC or the most, <laughs> the, the most, uh, maybe you might find the most resistance within FERC. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. But this is just a section about FERC oversight. Basically, the recommendation is like FERC needs to take a more active hand here in ensuring that this regional planning process is being done well, is being done in a, in a cost-effective way, which is just going to be a little bit more active governance, a little bit more active oversight. And uh, quoting from the report, Eliminate the multi-stage process that currently prevents interregional projects from being constructed. So tell us a little bit about 
what role you envision for FERC here, what these recommendations are about greater oversight and, and sort of like what the political valence is of those recommendations. Right. Well, again, FERC is the transmission regulator of the nation, and the courts have clarified that over recent years. And so I think the main thing here is, you know, put these planning approaches out there, put it into regulations, require them nationwide. Uh, Sure, there's going to be regional flexibility, and each region has a different set of institutions that will come into play and be used. Uh, I think FERC can sell this whole rule as providing plenty of regional variation and flexibility. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you've got to do these planning practices and FERC has to oversee that they happen. Uh, So with any nationwide rule from a regulator, there's always the risk of you you put it out, you require compliance filings, and then you kind of like loosen things up on compliance. And then over time, they get away with things and the regulator isn't making sure that the rule was followed. Right. The rule only matters if there's some stick some element of enforcement. Right. I mean, and the industry does follow it. I mean, look, there were plenty of opponents of open access in the mid nineties. Now they all have open access tariffs uh, and they, you know, they follow them like their contracts and uh, anybody can bring a case to FERC enforcement. If the tariff is not being followed, the tariff being like the public contract. And so the same would be the case here. And so just one, one hopes that FERC would follow through in implementation and make sure that all these practices are followed. Well, what can FERC do, though? <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm an RTO and I'm not following these practices and someone brings a case before FERC saying, you know, this such and such RTO isn't doing what you said, what sticks does FERC have in its backpack? Well, in some cases, they do have uh, enforcement authority and financial penalties. That's more in the like the market manipulation realm. Um, But with the regional transmission organizations, and I should also say the um, planning entities that are not in the RTOs, right? Because we've got the Southeast and the West where there is no RTO, uh, but they would also be subject to this this rule. You know, FERC uh, just simply has to tell them. It's not a great answer to your question, but, uh, you know, they, they set the rules and they are the regulator of these, these entities and, you know, FERC enforcement can get involved if they don't comply. So if it comes to it, then FERC can penalize them financially. That's basically what it's got in its. I don't know the extent of that on something like a transmission planning practice, but they do have some penalty authority, uh, that came up in the, uh, interconnection, context. So there may be some of that. Another thing mentioned in this section is the possibility that FERC could impose performance-based rate making on some of these entities. Is that a significant possibility? Um, I think there is some possibility there in certain contexts. Uh, It's not within scope of this particular rule. Mm. There are forms of incentives. Uh, FERC got all this incentive authority in um, EPACT of 2005, and they haven't really, well, they've used some of it. It's been sort of back and forth. And there are definitely opportunities like in the grid enhancing technology case to use incentives to reward utilities, you know, and they are the economic regulator. So they have the, the ability to penalize utilities and say you get less, you know, a rate of return if you don't do these things. Uh, so there's opportunity there. It's a, there's not like a, I don't think there's like a great 
proposal for how to kind of do that across their whole set of operations. I think there's some very narrow tailored approaches uh, for that. But again, FERC would have to do that in another proceeding. So how, I mean, just say a little bit about how, say FERC took this to heart, implemented this rule with these, with these requirements for a better planning process, guidance on the cost allocation, and then this more active governance and oversight, like describe a little bit how that would look to you. What would you like to see, like in your in your dream world? What would a more active FERC look like? What would that involve? A more vigorous oversight from FERC. So let's take uh, any any region. Um, I mean, the Midwest, MISO is the RTO there. They're doing a lot of this now, as is California, which is they, they look out 20 years, they estimate generation additions and retirements and low growth. Uh, they might do a scenario on electrification, like are we going to have a high uh, EV deployment in this region or low or middle? Uh, and they'll put all that together. And, the you know, this can happen in any region. MISO is actually... One of the better, like MISO is a, a leader. In right. This. They're, they're doing a lot of this now. Yeah. MISO and California ISO are doing a fair amount. Some other regions are, uh, have done some things lately. New York has done some things lately and uh, they're all talking about doing it partly just because FERC is driving this. Mm. And you know how, and you've talked about this many times about the, you know, the two terawatts of the generation in the interconnection queue. So this, this proposal is not about necessarily saying, let's take every proposed generator that anybody ever imagined and plan for that because that's, we're not going to get two terawatts by 2030 or whatever. So it's really more like uh, start with kind of from a consumer standpoint or a load serving entity standpoint of you know, what, what is needed to serve that load with the types of resources they, they say they want or their law says they need. And let's kind of work from that. So you make a, you know, a reasonable, just objective estimate of the new generation, the retired generation, the expanded load, and those are the main factors. And then you take that set of inputs and give them to the transmission planners and say, okay, transmission planning engineers, plan me the most efficient, reliable grid based on all that. And that, and planning engineers, they know exactly what to do with that. That's not mm-hmm. that's not hard for them. Uh, granted, they haven't been doing it mm-hmm. for very long, and the people who did that retired ten years ago. Uh, so there's a little bit of a human resource challenge there, but like generally, they they know how to do that, and that's essentially the vision, which consistent with everything we've talked about here, really isn't rocket science. It's just mm-hmm. planning for the future, and then you know get the transmission experts to say the right transmission grid for that future. And then what is the FERC, you're asking the, the FERC role here. So FERC can kind of say, hey, hey, wait a minute, you didn't actually factor in these factors or parties can appeal to FERC and say, wait a minute, my state has this policy or all of the consumers are saying they're buying this much energy or the load serving entities have sort of testified here or you know provided information about the resource mix they're going to be utilizing based on their whatever it is, their utility targets. And, you know, you haven't factored that in regional planning entity. So then FERC can say, hey, regional planning entity, do that, you know, put all that in there. And that's how they can, you know, they're not directing the outcome. They're not saying you need a DC line from over here to over there, but they're saying, 
you, you didn't follow the practice right. that we required. Right. And I should just say by background, I mean, maybe listeners already understand this, but the sort of background here is that the Federal Power Act requires utilities to set just and reasonable rates. That's sort of the engine of all this. The idea here is that if you're not doing this planning process in this rational way, then the resultant rates you decide on will not be just and reasonable if you were right. So if you're reasonable, you would do these things like that's kind of the driver in the background. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and that's, a, that's a good point to kind of highlight the, the cost benefit uh, issue here, which is transmission is not cheap, right? Nobody's mm-hmm. claiming it's cheap. Sure, there's, you know, technology ways to, you know, get a cheaper portfolio, but none of it's free. But the thing is, for just and reasonable rates, uh, you know, if you really look at it, we're actually doing things the most expensive way possible yeah, right. right now. Right. Which is not reasonable. Right, which is not not reasonable or just for anybody. Uh, a lot of consumer groups are saying this now to FERC, which is that, hey, look, maybe we'd even prefer zero was be spent on anything. But the reality is we're spending money on each incremental uh, request that comes in, both on the generation and the load side. And then we're serving that need and only that need, the minimum you know required to serve that need. Well, it turns out with an industry that has massive economies of scale, you're necessarily doing something that costs way more per delivered megawatt right. um, than if you plan just a little bit ahead and at the scale, like maybe the 230 kV line should be a 345 kV line or a 500 or 765. You know, we got we got to call a stop to the current practice. Just we right. can't keep doing right. things. That's that's the kind of the, the the root of FERC's authority here is that the current practice is is not just a reasonable. That's right. And, and one one other thing which I probably should have covered up front, but let's just say a quick word about it. You, you know, I think uh, listeners know that our electricity system, in its wisdom, is sort of split. <laughs> There's these restructured regions that have wholesale power markets and that are governed uh, where the you know transmission is governed by these regional bodies RTOs but then there's this other half of the country notably the south and the west the southeast and the west which are not wholesale power markets and do not have regional transmission organizations does all this apply to those regions just as well and if so what is, who does it apply to like who does regional planning in a region that's just balkanized utilities like what 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 do all these requirements apply to in those in those areas yeah uh, it does apply to all regions um and there are regional planning entities even in the regions without regional transmission organizations Mm. uh, that were set up under order 1000 in 2011 so for example there's northern grid and west connect out in the west so it's not clear what the final rule will say. It could be those groups or it could be, you know, they could allow different groups to do it. But uh, it is important for this to cover the entire country. Right. And let's just say, although this, as you say, this is in a completely different pod, but let's just say it would be, sure be convenient if the Southeast and the West would just get their shit together and form regional power markets and RTOs of their own so that at least we could have consistent entities across the country when we're trying to regulate uh, regulate things. So just to sort of review here, there's this upcoming FERC rule. It's been proposed. It's going to be finalized soon, ideally, um, and likely finalized in a FERC with three commissioners 
two of which are Democrats. It's going to require a better planning process, better cost allocation, and it's going to boost FERC's sort of authority and oversight. That is, this rule will do those things if these recommendations are, are accepted and taken to heart. So maybe actually two final questions. I should never say final question. Who's the really decision maker here? Like what's the sort of political valence of all this in terms of the commissioners? Like who, all of this sounds so obvious and sensible in such a way that it's difficult to kind of imagine who doesn't want this? Like (laughs) who doesn't want sane regional planning that takes a holistic view, et cetera, et cetera. So like what's the resistance here? Who needs to be persuaded on, on the commission. Chairman Phillips is the, you know, the leader uh, of, of the commission and on the timing and the substance. And he's, you know, going to work with his colleagues to make all the final policy calls and all the things. So he's, he's the, you know, primary person here and he wants to do, do this. He's been consistent in his public statements and his comments in the oversight committee hearings and energy and commerce and Senate energy about this, that, you know, this is a, a priority for him, uh, and uh, I, I believe it is. But, uh, you know, there's just a lot of details in here. You know, there are powerful entities that don't want FERC rules on things. They might be utilities or they might be incumbent generators uh, or others. And, you know, the commissioners all hear from them. And, like, everybody's a little bit nervous about spending too much money because everybody wants low electricity rates. Mm-hmm. So in that like uncertainty about exactly how much transmission is needed and where, I think there's a lot of room for parties to push the commission in different directions and for commissioners to say, well, you know, yes to the, this and no to that. So, you know, this is so important to get right. I get, I get nervous about those, those details, <laughs> but all the things we've discussed are on this podcast, these are the high level things that really are important and that would, I, you know, I would just think i mean any average person on the street yeah. would think of course they got to do those things it's not that complicated it's just like any planning you know it's like that's what planning is right <laughs> that's that's what planning is and uh yeah i mean i don't know if you had you know radical ideas about how you know you would do networks without the need to plan and just want it all like market-based system without regulations, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, who knows, but the, but the industry, you know, this is an interconnected, large regional multi-state network. Just iconically network and all the things, all the sort of design principles that apply to networks apply here as a really iconic form. And, and, you know, I sort of, I can sort of imagine individual entities with narrow pecuniary (laughs) interest in stopping this. But I can't imagine a sort of like public interest argument against it. You know, like I can sort of imagine a utility saying uh, this will, you know, this will reduce our profits some. But I can't even conceive of what the kind of sort of public interest argument against this stuff is. Well, remember, this is happening in Washington. Everything's, <laughs> yes, uh, we're recording this right before a potential, addition, you know, another government shutdown. So getting oh, basic Christ. things done. Okay. A, a really final question. You know, there's a lot to be said about this too, but just quickly sort of, it seems unlikely that any legislation is going to pass <laughs> DC ever again of any kind really, but especially, you know, transmission. It seems a little bit like, 
This is getting, it shouldn't be, but it is getting a little bit polarized. It seems like it's getting to be more of a Democrat versus Republican thing, even though that makes no sense, uh, you know, such is our politics. But are there in your sort of, uh, you know, realist, if we're taking a purely realist perspective here, are there legislative things that could be done that have some glimmer of chance of having bipartisan support and actually getting through a divided Congress? And if so, like, what are those, what are those things? Yes, I do think there is some possibility for bipartisan action. And I, I think the Senate Energy Committee is uh, thinking and taking seriously a lot of those things. I've had very encouraging conversations, many, many conversations with um, both uh, Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Energy Committee. And the one area that I think resonates with everybody is the interregional uh, case, which again is not so much the subject of this rule, and, and that partly the idea is well, FERC's doing the intra-regional right now, but there, I think there's pretty broad recognition then that, that in the interregional case, you know, really across and between these large areas of the country, the industry historically did not grow up with any way to get those types of lines built. Yeah. Can I just ask in that case, because it, it, like everything we've discussed, I can see how it could be, you know, applied relatively straightforwardly to the inter-regional yep. setting with one exception, which is what are the entities in question? What are the, what are the planning entities to whom all yeah. these rules apply in the inter-regional setting? Yeah, that's right. It, 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 applying a rule to many dozens of entities uh, is hard to hold anyone accountable for not doing right. it. Is there a, a prospect on the table of creating such entities or would just this just be a matter of like RTOs cooperating with other RTOs, like interregionally, who's doing that? Well, it's, uh, yeah, so there's two main options there. Um, first of all, I, I, you know, it will be helpful to, I think, if we get some kind of recognition that that's the that is the need, this large interregional yeah. case. Uh, we'll see, you know, what happens. There's plenty of evidence at this point. I mean, the DOE itself had that gigantic report that showed the benefits of, of national network. That's right. So then there's two uh, policy things to do about that. One is a, a process, like require you could have legislation directing FERC to set up a process with many of the same planning practices we've just discussed and apply them in the interregional case, recognizing that, you know, who exactly is the regulated entity and who do you hold accountable for not doing it? That's not easy, but, uh, you know, it's not totally unfamiliar to FERC either. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing is a process requirement. Uh, another is a minimum transmission capacity requirement between the, the regions. Just say, take a, say, well, we don't necessarily know the optimum level, but let's just make sure we have a minimum level and set that level at some percentage. Between regions. Between regions, right. And they do that actually in Europe. That was a, wasn't that on the table like recently or developed recently? Or yes. I feel like I heard about that in the background. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, uh, a lot of people probably heard about that in the context of the debt ceiling deal back in um, the late spring or June. But it didn't. Um, it didn't happen. And it was, uh, yeah, it kind of had a glimmer of, uh, of of hope and it was sort of uh, had some bipartisan support. So it almost got in there. And then it got summarily executed, I think, by uh, yeah. utilities <laughs> in their uh, Republican uh, yeah, cat's well, paws. No, no comment. The <laughs> fingerprints were, were removed. But um, yeah, it just turned into a report, unfortunately. Uh, 
but there was this big wires bill that Senator Hickenlooper and Representative Peters had introduced in their respective chambers. And that still uh, is kicking around. It's got the, the bill, the idea anyway, has a, a lot of support from a lot of stakeholders. Uh, so that's a that's another possibility, some some version of that. Okay, well, we're over time, and this has been so fascinating. So, uh, you know, this is um, this is something that uh, has come up on Volts over and over again, the need for more planning. I mean, not just in transmission, but just like it feels like every topic I get into, you pull the string long enough, you end up in two places. One, utilities are screwing everything up, and two, we need better planning. Like, I feel like those are the, the themes I end up, uh, no matter what topic I, I take on. So um, this is an opportunity here right in front of us to do better planning. So I know people don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to FERC on a day-to-day basis, but there's really, this is like uh, rubber hits the road time right now. So it's really important, I think, that people tune into this and, and do what they can to encourage FERC to go big here and to do well by this rule. By, by the way, is there anything like an average listener you know, it all seems so distant. <laughs> is there is there anything average people can do to poke or prod FERC to do well here? For those who might have a way to engage at the at the state level or the regional level, that that's important. No transmission really moves forward without strong support in the region. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so governors, you know, can be influential, encouraging governors to, you know, get supportive of this, I think that type of thing is is useful. Uh, even you know, state legislators are weighing in. The National Caucus of State Legislators, they about two hundred of them, wrote a letter to FERC. So uh, you know, there are sort of indirect ways to encourage FERC and, or to encourage the regional planning entity in the region, or encourage the governor or others involved in those processes to get on board with the agenda. All right, we will uh, leave it there. Rob, thanks for coming on and walking through this with us. It's, 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 it's funny when I get into these topics that seem sort of like forbiddingly technical from the outside, and then you dig in a little bit and it's like FERC wants regional planners to plan. (laughs) It's like, ah, that's not really, turns out it wasn't that technical. Now you know, and it's, yeah, it's not that hard. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Rob. Great to be with you, David. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.